Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Celebrate our God-given freedom and faith while honoring our Blessed Mother with Girelli's USA Rosary. Each state is represented on this rosary's 50 beads. Red, white, and blue enamel adorn its patriotic crucifix. Get yours today. Shop www.ghirelli.com. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. On breadboxmedia.com, this is Setting the Record Straight. I'm Chuck Hoffman. Today we're going to talk about The Hunted Priest. It's a very famous book among certain Catholic circles. It gets a lot of five-star ratings on Amazon. It's actually a classic of Catholic literature. But it should be better known outside the community of people who study church history or theology or book groups. It should be better known because it's a great classic. The reason it's not is actually, it's giving light to an episode of church history that no one speaks much about anymore. It's a hidden point in history, and quite a long one lasting centuries. There's no general knowledge about this, even among Roman Catholics, let alone Protestants, and especially let alone Episcopalians. And our public schools teach that Episcopalian British view of history, and it's a very biased history, lacking in objectivity. It should not be forgotten. It's a period of intense persecution of Catholics, actually rather vicious and savage persecution of Catholics for centuries under the British Empire. And perhaps because we're former British colonies, the history taught in our public schools is from a British perspective and therefore quite unfriendly to Catholicism. From a British perspective, actually British war propaganda, and they don't like to make mention of the million and a half Irish Catholics that were exterminated during this period strictly because of their religion or other reason. Now, you're probably well aware that it was the desire of King Henry VIII to divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. This was this king's great desire, and it gave rise to a very disastrous and turbulent period of history. The Pope studied the issue and denied Henry's desire for the divorce to Catherine of Aragon. And Henry VIII defied him by breaking off from the church and forming his own church and looting the considerable Catholic possessions that were in England, like a fifth of the land area. To gain a proper perspective on this, the population known as the English at this period in history were relative newcomers compared to the monks, compared to the Catholic Church. It was the monks that were there first, the Catholic monks. They'd been there for 1,100 years, 11 centuries of labor building out of an ugly landscape of moors and swamps and marshes through centuries of hard labor finally resulting in the beautiful English countryside that we know with arched bridges and beautiful little villages, the great abbeys, works of immense artistry. They would be standing today if they weren't deliberately ordered to be torn down and 
at least the roof torn off, by Henry VIII. The king intended not just to destroy Catholicism, but even the memory of Catholicism. It got worse under his daughter Elizabeth. So we don't speak much about this period of history, but the author, Father Gerard, doesn't gloss over anything, nor does he wax poetic about it either. He is giving a clear description of what happened to him and others. It is simply a great spellbinding read. This book is a case where where truth is stranger, a greater adventure, and more amazing than fiction. And that's really apparent in this classic work. Actually, the whole title is The Autobiography of a Haunted Priest. The author John Gerard is a most remarkable priest. When to be Catholic in England, courted imprisonment and torture. Actually, to be a priest was treason, declared by an act of parliament. He was French, of course, Father Jean Gerard. Père Jean Gerard, a most remarkable priest. He was smuggled into England after his ordination, dumped on a Norfolk beach at night. He disguised himself as a country gentleman and traveled about the country, saying mass in secret, preaching, ministering to the faithful, hearing confessions, baptizing, transubstantiating bread and wine into the body and blood. The houses in which he found shelter were always in constant danger because they were frequently raided by priest hunters. Special teams were sent by the king to find priests. The priest finally devised a way to hide in the walls. Little tiny holes, just enough to contain the man and a few essentials. They called them priest holes. Hiding in these priest holes and escaping by the breadth of a hair became a part of the priest's daily life. Mostly they would spend 23 hours in the priest hole, coming out for maybe a half hour to say Mass and perform the sacraments. It's a dedication and devotion that puts us to shame. Gerard was finally caught and imprisoned, and later removed to the infamous Tower of London, where he was brutally tortured. So what happened next in his adventure, and how could he possibly have survived it, but he did. And that is what this book describes, detail by detail, step by step, how he survived. It epitomizing this constant struggle of all human beings through the ages, to maintain their freedom. It's a book about the courage of one's convictions. This is how he describes what happened when he was arrested. He saw that the man in Topcliffe was trying to scare him. And to heighten the effect, Topcliffe clapped his sword on the table close to his hand, as though he intended to use it if the occasion arose. But his acting was lost on me. I generally answer with deference, but when I saw he was trying to frighten me, I was deliberately rude to him. He realized that he was going to get nothing more out of me, so he took his pen and wrote out a most clever and mendacious report on the examination. I'm placing it before the Privy Council. It shows you up as a traitor, and on many counts. This is what he had written. This examinee was sent to England by the Pope and by the Jesuit persons on a political mission to pervert the Queen's loyal subjects and to seduce them for the Queen's allegiance. He came by the way of Belgium, where he had interviews with the Jesuit Holt and with Mr. William Stanley. If, therefore, he refuses to disclose the places where he has stayed and the persons with whom he has been in contact, the presumption is that he has done much mischief to the state. I read through the paper. It saw at once that I could never meet all these lies with a single denial. As I wanted him to let the council see my answer, I told him I would reply in writing. 
Topcliffe was delighted. Oh, you're showing some sense now. However, he was disappointed. He was hoping to trip me up on what I wrote, or at least to get a sample of my handwriting. If he had this, he could prove that certain papers found, found in the search of the houses belonged to me. I saw the trap and wrote in a feigned hand, quote, I was sent to England by my superiors. I never set foot in Belgium, nor have I seen Father Holt since I left Rome. I have not seen Mr. Stanley since he left England with the Earl of Leicester. I'm forbidden to meddle in state affairs, and I've never done and never will. My endeavor has been to bring back souls to the knowledge and love of their creator, to make them live and do obedience to God's laws and man's. And I hold this last to be a matter of consequence. I humbly beg that my unreadiness to reply to the questions concerning persons now may not be put down to contempt of authority. I'm forced to act thus by God's commandments. To do otherwise would be a sin against justice and charity. While I was writing, the old man became more and more angry. He shook with passion. I write the truth or nothing, I said. No, he snarled, write such and such, and I will make a fresh copy of what you write. I shall write what I want and not what you want. If you like, you can show what I've written to the council. All I am going to add is my signature. Then I signed up very close to the line so that he had no space to add anything. He saw that he was beaten, and in his frustration he blurted out threats and blasphemies. I will see that you're brought to me and placed in my power. I will hang you up in the air. It will have no pity on you. And then I shall watch and see whether God will snatch you from my grasp. He spoke from the cesspool of his heart, but his effect on me was the opposite of what he wanted. He raised my hopes. Then and always I have despised blasphemers, and I have learned from experience that God puts hope in the hearts of his servants the moment he lets a storm burst about them. I answered in a few words, You can do nothing unless God allows it. He never abandoned those who trust in him. God's will be done. Young then told the jailer who had brought me to take me back to my prison. As he was leading me away, Topcliffe called him back and ordered him to see that my legs were placed in irons. The pair of them then fell to unbraiding the jailer for bringing me along by himself. They were afraid I might escape. So I crept back into my little room, and my legs were adorned according to instructions. The man who chained me up seemed sorry he had to do it, but I did not feel the least bit sorry for myself. Quite the contrary. I became very happy. So good is God to the least of his servants to recompense the man for his good turn. I gave him a little money and told him that it was no punishment to suffer in such a good and noble cause. So the good priest, Père Jean Gerard, spent about three or four months in Legarns before they brought him up again and asked him what he termed the bloody question. This chapter 14 of the book is entitled The Bloody Question, and it speaks to the heart of the matter. Here it is. Another time they had me up for examination with all the other Catholics in our prison and the public place called a guild hall. Topcliffe was there with many other commissioners. And after they had run through the usual questions and I'd given the answers I always gave, they came to the point they wanted, as far as I could see, to find out how we were all disposed toward the government. 
They hoped to trip us up in the way we spoke about the Queen and then frame a charge against us. Turning to me, they asked, Do you recognize the Queen as a true and lawful Queen of England? I do, I answered. And in spite of the fact that she has been excommunicated by Pius V, said Topcliffe, I recognize that she is Queen, I replied, though I know too that there has been an excommunication. I was aware, of course, the Pope had stated that the excommunication had not yet come to force in England. Its application had been withheld until it could be made effective. Then Topcliffe asked, What will you do if the Pope were to send over an army and declare that his only object was to bring the kingdom back to its Catholic allegiance? And if he stated at the same time that there was no other way of reestablishing that Catholic faith and commanded everyone by his apostolic authority to support him, whose side would you be on then, the Pope's or the Queen's? Then I saw the man's subtlety and wicked cunning. He had so framed his question that whatever I answered, I would be sure to suffer for it, either in body or in soul. I picked the words of my reply. I'm a loyal Catholic, and I'm a loyal subject of the Queen. If this were to happen, and I do not think it at all likely, I would behave as a loyal Catholic and as a loyal subject. Oh, no, he said. I want a plain and straight answer. What would you do? I answered. I've told you what I think, and I will not give you any other answer. Then he flew in a most violent rage and spat a torrent of oaths at me, and finally he said, You fancy that this year you will be creeping to adore the cross. But before that time comes round, I will make quite sure that you will not. In his great kindness, this man wanted to insinuate that he would make sure I went to heaven with a halter before that time. But he had not even seen into the sanctuary of God, and he knew nothing of my great unworthiness. God indeed permitted him to do his worst on those whom his divine wisdom judged fit and worthy, on Father Southwell, for instance, and on others whom persecuted to their death. Yet his wrath worked no such mercy on me, nor was in the power of this angry man to obtain for me this heavenly blessing. As a footnote, it said, this was the famous bloody question devised by Burghley in 1583 with the object of trapping Catholics into a statement which could be construed as disloyalty to the crown. Now we come to chapter 15, The Tower and Torture. The Tower and Torture. April, 1597. They led me away and took me to the Tower of London. There they handed me over to the governor, a knight called Berkeley, who had the title of Queen's Lieutenant. At once he took me up to a large, tall tower, three stories high, with lock-ups on each story. There are many such towers inside the fortifications. For that night he assigned me a room on the first floor, and handed me over to a warder in whom he had special confidence. The warder then went off and returned with a little straw. He spread it on the ground and went away again, shutting the door of my cell and fastening another door above it with a great bar and iron bolts. So I commended my soul to God 
who, going down as he does into the pit with his people, never abandoned me in my bonds, and then to the Blessed Virgin Mother of Mercy, and to my patrons and my guardian angel. And after I had made my prayer, my mind was at rest, and I lay down to sleep on the straw. That night I slept very well. The next morning I walked round my cell in its dim light. I found the name of the Blessed Father Henry Walpole cut with a chisel on the wall. Then close to it I discovered his little oratory. Let me interject a note here for those of you who don't recognize the name Henry Walpole. Consider this. By the gallows, where Edmund Campion was being martyred, stood a young law student, Henry Walpole, a lukewarm Catholic, inspired by the example of this great Jesuit martyr Campion. He resolved to go to Rome and study to become a Jesuit and to return. And he did. And he did return. And a few years later, was martyred himself after many accomplishments. So our author, Gerard, was greatly inspired by being in this cell that had been occupied by Henry Walpole before he was tortured and killed. Let's continue. There I discovered his little oratory by the window. It was now blocked with stonework. But there on either side he had chalked the names of all the orders of the angels. At the top above the cherubim and seraphim was the name of Mary, Mother of God, and then above it the name of Jesus. It was a great comfort to me to find myself in a place sanctified by this great and holy martyr, and in the room where he had been tortured so many times, fourteen in all, as I have heard. And as they tortured him more often than they wanted known, they did not do it in the ordinary public chamber, and I can well believe that he was tortured that number of times, since he completely lost the use of his fingers. For when he was taken back to York to be executed in the place where he was arrested on his landing in England, he wrote out with his own hand an account of the discussion he had with some ministers there. Part of it was given to me later with some meditations on the Passion of Christ, which he wrote in prison before his own Passion. I was hardly able to read what he had written, not only because he wrote it in haste, but because his hand could barely form the letters. It looked like the writing of a schoolboy, not that of a scholar and gentleman. Yet he was a courtier before Campion's execution, and while he was still a layman, wrote some beautiful English verses in his honor, and telling how martyr's blood had brought warmth into his life, and many others too, inspiring them to follow the more perfect way of Christ's counsels. On the third day, the warder came to my room, straight from his dinner. Looking sorry for himself, he said, the Lord's commissioners had arrived with the Queen's Attorney General, and that I had to go down to them at once. I'm ready, I said. But just let me say an hour, Father, and hail Mary downstairs. He let me go, and then we went off together to the lieutenant's lodgings inside the walls of the tower. Five men were there waiting for us, none of whom except Wade had examined me before. He was there to direct the charges against me. The attorney general took out a sheet of paper and solemnly began to write out a form of, of juridical examination. They put no questions about individual Catholics. They were all about political matters. And I answered on the general lines I'd always done before. I said that matters of states were forbidden to Jesuits, and consequently I never had anything to do with them. You say, said the attorney general, 
You have no wish to obstruct the government. Tell us then where Father Garnett is. He's an enemy of the state, and you're bound to report on all such men. He isn't an enemy of the state, I said. On the contrary, I'm certain that if he were given the opportunity to lay down his life for his queen and country, he would be glad of it. I don't know where he lives, but if I did, I would not tell you. Then we'll see to it that you tell us before we leave this place. Please, God, you won't, I answered. Then they produced a warrant for putting me to torture. They had it ready by them and handed it to me to read. I saw that the warrant was properly made out and signed, and I answered, With God's help, I shall never do anything that is unjust or act against my conscience or the Catholic faith. You have me in your power. You can do to be what God allows you to do. More you cannot do. Then they began to implore me not to force them to take steps they were loath to take. They said they would have to put me to the torture every day as long as my life lasted, until I gave them the information they wanted. I trust in God's goodness, I said, that he will prevent me from ever committing a sin such as this, the sin of accusing innocent people. We are all in God's hands, and therefore I have no fear of anything you can do to me. This was the sense of my answers as far as I can recall them now. We went to the torture room, in a kind of solemn procession, the attendants walking ahead with lighted candles. The chamber was underground and dark, particularly near the entrance. It was a vast place, and every device and instrument of human torture was there. They pointed out some of them to me and said that I would try them all. Then they asked me again whether I would confess. I cannot, I said. I fell on my knees for a moment's prayer. Then they took me to a big upright pillar, one of the wooden posts which held the roof of this huge underground chamber. Driven in the top of it were iron staples for supporting heavy weights. Then they put my wrists into iron gauntlets and ordered me to climb two or three wicker steps. My arms were then lifted up and an iron bar was passed through the rings of one gauntlet then through the staple and rings of the then through the staple and rings of the second gauntlet. This done they fastened the bar with a pin to prevent it slipping, and then removing the wicker steps one by one from, from under my feet, they left me hanging by my hands and arms fast above my head. The tips of my toes, however, still touched the ground, and they had to dig away the earth from under them. They could have hung me up from the highest staple in the pillar, they could not raise me any higher without driving into another staple. Hanging like this, I began to pray. The gentleman standing around asked me whether I was willing to confess now. I cannot and I will not, I answered. But I could hardly utter the words. Such a gripping pain came over me. It was worse than my chest and belly, my hands and arms. All the blood in my body seems to rush up into my arms and hands and I thought that blood was oozing out from the ends of my fingers and the pores of my skin, but it was only a sensation caused by my flesh swelling above the irons holding them. The pain was so intense that I thought I could not possibly endure it. I had an interior temptation, yet I did not feel any inclination or wish to give them the information they wanted. 
The Lord saw my weakness with the eyes of his mercy and did not permit me to be tempted beyond my strength. With the temptation, he sent me relief. Seeing my agony and the struggle going on in my mind, he gave me this most merciful thought. The utmost and worst they can do to you is to kill you. And you have often wanted to give up your life for your Lord God. The Lord God sees all you're enduring. He can do all things. You are in God's keeping. With these thoughts, God in his infinite goodness and mercy gave me the grace of resignation and with a desire to die and a hope, I admit that I would. I offered him myself to do with me as he wished. From that moment, the conflict in my soul ceased and even the physical pain seemed much, much more bearable than before. Though it must, in fact, have been greater with the growing strain and weariness of my body. When the gentlemen present saw that I was not answering their questions, they went off to the lieutenant's house and stayed there. Every now and again, they sent to find out how things were going with me. Three or four robust men remained behind to watch and supervise the torture, and also my warder. He stayed, I think, out of kindness. For every few minutes, he took a cloth and wiped the perspiration that ran in drops continuously down my face and my whole body. That helped me a little. But he added to my sufferings when he started to talk. He went on and on begging and imploring me to pity myself and tell the gentlemen what they wanted to know, that I thought. And he heard so many human reasons for this that I thought that the devil had instigated him to feign affection or that my tortures had left him behind on purpose to trick me. But I felt all these suggestions of the enemy like blows in the distance. They did not seem to touch my soul or affect me in any way. More than once I interrupted him. Stop this talk for heaven's sakes. Do you think I'm going to throw my soul away to save my life? You exasperate me. But he went on. After several times, the others joined in. You will be a cripple all your life if you live, and you're going to be tortured every day until you confess. But I prayed in a low voice as well that I could, calling on the names of Jesus and Mary. Sometime after one o'clock, I think, I fell into a faint. How long I was unconscious, I don't know, but I don't think it was for long, for the men held my body up or put the wicker steps under my feet until I came to. Then they heard me pray, and immediately they let me down again. And they did this every time I fainted, eight or nine times that day, before it struck five. After four, or before five o'clock, Wade returned. Coming to me, he asked, Are you ready now to obey the queen and her counsel? I answered, You want me to do what is sinful? I will not do it. All you have to say, said Wade, is that you wish to speak to Cecil, her majesty's secretary. I have nothing to say to him, and I said, except what I've said to you already. If I asked to speak to him, people would be scandalized. They would think I'd given away, that at last I was going to say something that I should not say. In a rage, he suddenly turned his back on me and strode out of the room, shouting angrily in a loud voice, Then hang there until you rot off the pillar. He left, and I think that all the commissioners left the tower. Then for at five o'clock the tower bell is rung, a signal for all to leave unless they want to have the gate locked on them. 
A little later, they took me down. My legs and feet were not damaged, but it was a great effort to stand upright. They led me back to my cell. On the way, we met some prisoners who had the run of the tower, and I turned to speak to my warder. What surprises me, I said, is that the commissioners want me to say where Father Garnett's house is. Surely they know it's a sin to betray an innocent man. I will never do it, even if I have to die. I said this to prevent them spreading a report, as they do so often, that I had confessed something. I also wanted word to get around through these men that it was chiefly concerning Father Garnett that I had been questioned, so he might be glad to hear and look to his own safety. I saw that the warder was not pleased if I talked in their hearing, but that made no difference to me. When I got to the cell, the man seemed really sorry for me. He laid a fire and brought me some food as it was nearly supper time. But I could eat only a little, and I lay down on my bed and rested quietly until morning. This is the end of the first part of the story of the hunted priests. My friends, you will want to hear what happens next because there's a magnificent end to the story. It's a great end to the story. In part two of these two podcasts about the haunted priest, we will continue listening to the words of Jean Girard and what happened to him in the Tower of London. And after that, because there is an after that, he did not die there. We'll be listening to the chapter entitled Escape and what happened after the escape and the life he lived after that. You'll want to hear it. It's a glorious climax. For setting the record straight, this is Chuck Coughlin on breadboxmedia.com. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. I'd like to invite you to join me for a pilgrimage tour to France this September. It's based on my book, St. Benedict and St. Therese, The Little Rule and the Little Way. I'll be teaching about the spiritualities and the lives of these two great saints, and we'll be visiting the great monastery of Fleury, where St. Benedict's relics are venerated, and of course going to Lisieux to visit the childhood home of St. Therese, the Carmel where she was a nun, and the great basilica dedicated to her honor. But there's more than that. At Paris, we'll be visiting the Basilica of Sacré-Cœur, Rue de Bac with the Miraculous Medal, going on to Vézelay, Nevers with St. Bernadette, paris le Monial, where the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus was given to St. Margaret Mary, and then Chartres Cathedral, Mont Saint-Michel, the Normandy beaches, and more. I think there's not only going to be time for instruction and learning, but also prayer and worship, celebrating Mass in the various locations, and also time for fellowship and a good bit of French food and wine, too. Come and join us this September. If you'd like to know more, go to catholicheritagetours.com. That's catholicheritagetours.com, or be in touch with me through my website, twightlongenecker.com. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at caneford.com.